Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discuss criminals in the White House, learn about the tangled history of Marvel Comics, and chew over the Faustian bargain some cities make with universities. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for April 9th, 2021. The boys from I-94 spoke with Abraham Reisman, author of True Believer, a new biography of Stan Lee. Reisman discussed Lee's career and his role in the birthing of the Marvel comic universe, his struggles with his family, and the late-in-life financial fiascos that tainted his legacy. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Abraham, real quickly for people who are not in the know, and I think that most people who have seen Marvel movies probably are in the know, but there are people out there who might not know who Stan Lee is. Can you give us a real quick summary of why Stan Lee is an important person? Sure. Um, So Stan Lee uh, is popularly identified as the driving force behind Marvel Comics, um, specifically the Marvel Comics uh, explosion of the 1960s when a bunch of the characters that now dominate the box office were first introduced characters like the Avengers and the X-Men, Spider-Man, Black Panther, that sort of thing. the complicating factor uh, is it's unclear exactly how much uh, he was actually responsible for creating these characters, but we'll get into that later. Uh, the reason he's famous and significant is he, uh, at the very least, popularized these characters and was an incredible salesman who was able to make Marvel this, um, it, you know, help make Marvel. He wasn't the only person behind it. Um, make Marvel this iconic brand that it is today. Um, and yeah, I, I, he he was a complicated individual, as we'll get into. But his impact is pretty undeniable. You you may recognize him from his many cameos, uh, sort of Hitchcock like cameos in various Marvel movies. He didn't have anything to do with the movies. Uh, By then, he was totally not involved um, by the time those movies got big. Um, But that said, uh, they have brought added fame for him in the past 20 odd years. Let's start off with, you know, the comic books themselves, because I think most modern people, you know, comic books were extremely popular in the 50s, 60s, pretty much until the 80s or 90s. And they really have fallen off as a consumer good. Um, As a collector, I can tell you, you know, comic books used to sell for as little as a dime or 25 cents and now have become quite expensive. They're around four dollars, five dollars, even up to ten dollars a copy. Yeah, Yeah, graphic novels are even more. So what used to be a cheap thing that uh, parents would buy for their kids and were really widely enjoyed as mass media uh, no longer has that same place in the popular culture. But when Stan started out and when Marvel started out, and I think this is important to note, um, the entire industry was this hard scrabble business. It was largely run by New York Jewish businessmen who were in publishing, who were trying to pump out a lot of product as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And one of the ways they did it was seizing on the American appetite, uh, which kind of came out of nowhere for gaudily costumed superheroes. Um, <laughs> and Stan, of course, was was one of the first people with that. But it, it's unfair to just only set him up as you know this is a guy that you should know from the Avengers. He actually had a very long career. He started when he was 19 years old, if I remember correctly, at um, yeah, Martin Goodman's place. And he was writing Millie the Model. He was in uh, Serving in the War. He, he, he did a lot with actual raw comics creation before the time when most people, when they're thinking about comics, actually, you know, 
talk about comics. Can we mm-hmm. talk about a little bit about those kind of ur creative periods? Because I think that's really interesting. And you, in your book, you describe the kind of, again, this hard scrabble upbringing and the influences that were on Stan. And it's very interesting because I think you make a very compelling case that his background and the way he was brought up in this business is, in a sense, what set him up for uh, a long fall many years in the future. Sure. Well, it's 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 a lot of questions wrapped up into one, but I'll I'll, I'll take a stab, and you can tell me if I'm answering it. Um, you know, uh, Stan had a lot of factors, like any human being, that played into how his life went. Um, and one of them was the fact that he was employed at a very early age in comics, um, and yet, um, was employed in comics, not because he wanted to be, but rather because the opportunity just sort of presented itself. He was, uh, I I should say earlier, uh, I, I forgot to give the, the basic job title, which was, he was a writer and editor. Um, he was not drawing any of these comics. He, he did not have any, any visual artistic talent. He was, he was a writer and editor. Um, and he became a writer and editor largely just because when he was a teenager, uh, his cousin-in-law, the guy you mentioned, Martin Goodman, who was a, a, a somewhat disreputable publisher of pulp magazines and, and other such things and, and newly comic books as of then, um, you know, he, or rather newly superhero comics as of then, um, you know, he was, like I said, Stan's cousin-in-law. This was a family gig. This was, you know, his, his, <laughs> his mom wanted to get him a gig so he would, you know, have something to do and a, a stream of income. And so he ended up as a gopher just doing random errands at Martin Goodman's company uh, around 1939, 1940. And then through a series of uh, events that may have had to do with him ratting somebody out, may not have, whatever, uh, the corporate structure changed and they needed a new editor-in-chief. So at a very young age, uh, before he's even 20, he's the editor-in-chief of this this comic book line. Um, And he, as you say, had this long career and a lot of it was driven by his desire to get out of comic books. Um, Even when he was making comic books that were changing the world, um, in the 1960s, uh, many decades later, because he started, I should say, in, like I said, 1939, 1940, um, you know, even decades later when the comics were very popular, he was trying to do something else because this was not his intended career. He did not grow up loving comic books, mainly because comic books didn't exist until 1933 or so. Um, but certainly once he was in there, he always had his eyes set on bigger things and that motivated him to keep going, but also yeah, enabled a lot of missteps. I wanted to just mention this, something that really surprised me was the mention of Patricia Highsmith early in the book. I was, <laughs> I was surprised to see that uh, one of his friends, they was trying to set them up as roommates. Is that? Uh, no, as a, as a date. As a date, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, Patricia, uh, Patricia Highsmith, the great, the great Patricia Highsmith was uh, doing a little bit of writing of comics at Martin Goodman's company. Um, and, uh, if I recall correctly, Vince Fago, who was, uh, also at the company and subbed in for Stan as the editor in chief, um, while Stan was serving in the war, uh, I believe it was Vince who introduced the two of them and it didn't go well, you know, it wasn't a disaster by, by Vince's, uh, you know, description, but it didn't go anywhere because, um, Stan just wanted to talk about himself, and Patricia wasn't interested in Stan Lee as a subject. I like that um, final sentence, and when you're, t- it's like just Stan was into himself or something. I can't remember exactly yeah. how Vince <laughs> phrased it, but yeah, I was like Stan just wanted to talk about Stan, 
And that was not Patricia's uh, bag. I yeah. actually have it right here. It was Stan Lee was only interested in Stan Lee. <laughs> right. That was that was Vince Vince Vago describing Stan. And you know, it's interesting. We mentioned Patricia Highsmith. A, a number of other actual well-known writers did work in comics. I mean, Dashiell Hammett is the is the good example. Mm-hmm. He went from doing comic books to writing Mike I did not Hammer. Know that. Are, are those? Can you get those? Yes, you can. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Mike Danger series is is still available. He did those in the '40s and '50s. And oh, wow. you know, of course, other people. Uh, subbed in in comics Ray Bradbury famously wrote a lot sure. of comics or they would be adapted by by Marvel uh, in the later years so there was actually a literary ferment so Stan as you mentioned did not want to do that he had designs of being a serious writer right yeah yeah he wanted to I mean the story he always told is he adopted the name Stan Lee he'd been born Stanley Martin Lieber to Romanian Jewish uh, refugees in New York Um you know, the reason he he took the name, he always said, was because he wanted to save his real name for writing the great American novel. Um, and, you know, whether that specifically was the origin of him adopting that moniker back in the turn of the 40s, you know, who knows? But it certainly fits with the larger outline of how he approached his career. He, you know, stopped trying to use anything other than the name Stan Lee. Um, but under that name, he tried to branch out into any number of different projects and mediums and genres, uh, never with anything resembling the success that he had with superhero comics in the 1960s. But I mean, it also seemed like a practical decision, a survival mechanism. You make it clear in the book that being a, a, a comics writer or, or illustrator, inker, whatever, working in the comics industry wasn't exactly a reputable no, no. Profession. I mean, he he would lie about it. At, sure, I mean, even especially when he in the fifth big, yeah. Right, especially in the fifties when there was this huge moral panic about comic books. Um, oh yeah. You know there were comic book burnings and Senate, you know, hearings about comic books, and um, yeah, you know, there's a famous book called Seduction of the Innocent, which is I just think one of the best titles for a book <laughs> in a moral panic. That you could have that be the title of any book in any moral panic. And he, Frederick Wortham, who wrote it, just nailed it. But um, you know, in the '50s especially, he wanted to downplay the degree to which he was involved in writing comics. Um, but then even later, it, it just was not the medium that he found most compelling. I mean, he he would say in private conversation, um, you know, I never read comic books while I was making them. Like if I wasn't involved in making them, I didn't read them. You know, that was, it would just, and you know, there's this conversation that he recorded that he had with the director, Alain Rene of Hiroshima Mon Amour. Um, You know, they'd become friends, which is a whole other story, but he, in the sixties taped a conversation that he had over, you know, one evening with Alain and, uh, and uh, Stan's wife, Joan in which he just says, I don't understand people who read comic books. Like I wouldn't read them if I had the chance to not read them. Um, So this was not a medium that he liked. Um, And, you know, he often felt embarrassed about it, even after the moral panic. It just was not, you know, you look at listings and society pages for Long Island where he lived in the 1960s, you know, after Marvel has started to really break big um, or at least become a, a, a powerful force. And in those society page listings for parties that he and Joan would throw in Long Island, they, they just, it never mentions that he writes comic books. It's always like he's in publishing or he's a writer 
You know, it, it very specifically does not mention. At one time, you have one that even mentions in 1963, two years into the Marvel Revolution, you have uh, him getting described uh, as the author of a book of hilarious captions. <laughs> Jarofsky chatted with Jill Wine Banks, the self-described Watergate girl. Banks, who was a prosecutor during Watergate and was the first woman to serve as general counsel of the U.S. Army, discussed her life, her career, and her new book about the Nixon era. Banks also drew parallels to another criminal president. Find out more each week with Benny every Friday at noon. Let's just talk a little bit about Watergate Girl. It's out of paperback. Tell folks what Watergate Girl is and uh, why they should read it. Go ahead, Jill. Okay, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Watergate Girl, of course, is my memoir of being the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate uh, obstruction of justice case in which Richard Nixon's top aides all went to jail and he was named an unindicted co-conspirator. But it's much more than the story of the trial and the investigation and the 18 and a half minute gap. It's also the story of my private life and my personal hurdles and the hurdles that all women went through, it, it kind of captures the era, your favorite era, the 70s. It captures that and talks about the sexism of the era, the blatant gender discrimination, and talks about how I overcame those things in ways that hopefully other people will see they too can accomplish whatever they set out to accomplish and can overcome those. It's, I hope it's a good read. That's what people tell me, the comments I get. And it has now been optioned for a movie. Whoa, I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. Katie Holmes just bought the, well, uh, you know, an option to make it into a movie or a television series. 
Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. And, and it, 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 in many ways, uh, Watergate Girl rem, uh, reminds me of Mrs. America. I don't know if you saw that. I uh, did. I did. utterly obsessed with that show, Jill. And I did a deep dive with it uh, with several guests. We talked obsessively about it for over an hour, if such a thing is possible. And there was not enough time. Uh, but I think of you very much as part of that crowd, even though you were not pushing for uh, openly pushing for uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. Oh, I was. I, I was. I was at the 1976 Democratic Convention and working the state delegations to support the Equal Rights Amendment. I was working with Liz Carpenter. And so, it, yes, I definitely was involved. Um, I think of you, I apologize for that oversight. I yeah. think of you more as the prosecutor. I didn't think of you. Liz Carpenter, that was, wasn't was that Lady Bird Johnson's press yes. secretary? Yes. Wow, the things I know. Anyway, uh, so... Uh, utterly obsessed with that era and that time and the push for the Equal Rights Amendment. And one of the, th- the similarities that all the women, uh, even Phyllis Schlafly, who was opposed, vehemently opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment, they all had to deal with the fact that they would be um, minimized as players in the game. And uh, there was just a compulsion by their male allies, if you will, if it was Phyllis Schlafly, the Ronald Reagans of the world, the Richard Nixons of the world, um, the the senator, the Congressman Cranes of the world, to sort of like just not take you seriously, not view you as an equal, uh, and your story is very much in tune with that, correct? Well, it is because it is the story of my struggle to be accepted as a legal equal, not to be called a lady lawyer, which really to this day offends me. I was a trial lawyer. I'm not a lady lawyer. And I am an equal to anybody else who graduated law school and had the same experiences I did. Um, it, it definitely was the argument against ERA was largely, well, we'd have to share bathrooms with men. That was, and isn't that what we're hearing now on the LGBTQ and transgender? It's bathrooms. Uh, it, it was also the draft back then, um, but there was no valid reason against it. By uh, chance, by coincidence, uh, Jill, uh, G. Gordon Liddy passed, uh, I think it was either yesterday or the day before. I'm not quite sure what exact day, but I read the, uh, his obituary uh, in the paper. Uh, let's take a moment to reflect a little bit about the life and times of a man that I would say is batshit crazy, G. Gordon Liddy. <laughs> uh, he rose to the high ranks uh, in the White House as a political operative for Richard Nixon, very much involved in the Watergate uh scandal and uh, then became a right-wing hero. Talk a little bit about uh, G. Gordon Liddy. So Watergate had a very colorful cast of characters and Gordon Liddy, G. Gordon Liddy, was certainly one of the most colorful of the group. He um, had been an FBI agent. He was a prosecutor in New York in one of the counties. And then He got involved in politics and ended up being part of the plumbers unit, which was the group that broke into Ellsberg's office, broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Um, He was basically the mastermind. He presented what was known as Operation Gemstone to Attorney General Mitchell, who went on to become the head of the of CREEP, the committee to reelect the president. Um, And he had this big 
easel with uh, posters on it showing the various things they would do under Operation Gemstone, which included the DNC break-in, but also using prostitutes to lure delegates at the Democratic Convention to uh, a houseboat where they would be filmed and blackmailed. Uh, I mean, a lot of absurd things. And Mitchell responded not by saying this is illegal, it's ridiculous, get out of here, he said. Uh, A million dollars is too much to spend on that. Cut the budget and I'll approve it. And so he cut the budget. It got approved. And that led to the break in. Um, He was not apprehended. He wasn't actually inside the DNC. He was directing it, but he was very quickly linked to it, as was the other colorful character, E. Howard Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and who had been a CIA agent and went on to write tawdry novels. Um, you know, actually not bad ones, but you know, if you're into that genre and, um, Gordon Liddy was known for his silence. He would not speak to anybody, no matter what he went to jail rather than speak. He used to harden himself by putting his hand over an open flame. And at one point saying, you know, if, if you don't like this, I'll stand on a street corner and you can kill me in terms of hush money and, and keeping quiet. Um, he did a lot of really strange things. He shot a gun once during, he was prosecuting a case in New York and uh, actually discharged the firearm in the courtroom. Uh, he did a lot of very weird things and uh, he went on to become, strangely enough, for a silent person, he went on to become a radio talk show host. Uh, pretty white right wing and um, ridiculous statements. Um, a friend of mine just called me to say, did you know that he died? I once heard him on a station that was uh, had Christian science uh, services on it. And he used foul language. And she, she happens to be a Christian scientist. And so she was offended and said to the church, they should stop being on that channel because he used foul language, which by today's standards, Definitely not foul, but um, yeah, he he was quite a character, and he went to jail for the break-in for his role in the break-in, and never spoke. My recollection is that he was the gentleman uh, manning the phones in the building across from the Watergate, but I could be uh, misremembering it. Uh, but that's no, my he, well, he was part of the across the street of Watergate was the. Howard Johnson was actually, um, I think it was, I want to say Tony Ulasowicz, but I don't think it was him, um, who was supposed to be watching as the break-in was taking place so that they could walkie-talkie. They didn't have, there were no cell phones back then. They could use a walkie-talkie to say, the police are on their way, get out of there. He was watching, and it wasn't Liddy, but that person was watching a television show, got distracted, and didn't see when the police arrived, so they got arrested. Ah. Um, but it, it was Liddy and Hunt were not in the DNC. Liddy and Hunt got arrested afterwards um, for, for a variety of reasons they were linked. Uh, there was a book by Jimmy Breslin back in the 60s. It was called The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. And that sounds like this crew. Uh, that was or the Marx Brothers. Yes, exactly. Uh, by the way, I have a great you- picture of me and Richard Benvenista with Jimmy Breslin, who came to watch the trial. Just, 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 hey, I, I need them bolt cutters of mine again. Kyle, we've been over this. 
no bolt cutters until you stop using ah. them to cut the lock off my bicycle. How dare you, Jessica? I wouldn't have to cut the lock if you didn't keep locking it up. Besides, how could I have stolen your bicycle if you still have it? Because all six times I caught you and I took it back. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, God knows what would happen if you got away with it. You don't even know how to ride a bicycle. What thievery are you up to now? Jess, I am softened by that remark. If truth be known, I am trying to secure myself gainful employment. With bolt cutters? With, with what is behind this fence over here on Morgan. Feast your eyes on the rarest of floor finds. Tree saws. This is an active construction site. I, I just saw these guys pop over to Saluri's for lunch. Well, it looks like it ain't that active then. Listen, just stand back and let me get to work over here. I have liberates them. Freedom is now mine. I still don't get this. It's very easy, Jess. Pulaski Savings Bank is always needing tree service, and with these tools, I can provide that service. And from that, I can parlay it into some fall-time haggerswaggle. Kyle, you're like 70 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Tree cutting is arduous work. Are you sure you're physically up for this? I got some million-dollar marketing idea, so just sit back and watch. What are you jokers doing now? Oh, Kyle's trimming trees at the bank. They're giving him 60 bucks. Is he okay? He looks a little pale. Um, I think he might be having a heart attack, actually. Mm, that's just his regular clammy sweat and deathly complexion. You jagoffs can say what you want, but my treeway system is going to change the industry. <laughs> Your what? Yeah, it's my system to gin up business. All over Bridgeport are trees that need trimming. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this sign. How about a treeway? Are you serious? Absolutely. Watch this. Hey, you over there. How about a treeway? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. How about no. a treeway? A treeway right way. now. Can it, trucker? <laughs> uh, what's this about? A three-way? You got it, buddy. You're the first for my treeway system. Uh, with, with you and these guys? Uh, I, I'm not involved here. Oh. Oh, no, Jamie. You, you've you made him sad. Ah, Look how sad he is. That's not very neighborly. How are we going to get this treeway system off the ground if yous don't help at all? Um, hey, this is your bright idea. I'm pretty sure it's against my religion. How is this my this idea? This is your idea because... Jesus, they'll be at it forever. Let's get back leave. to this treeway, Kyle. What exactly is this system? I'm so glad you asked. First, the thrusting. Uh, oh. Uh, as we cut across branches... Then there's the flexing. Oh. As we trim the branches, and then the final stroke is to clean up the leaves. (laughs) Well, I'm in. Your place or mine. (laughs) I got no trees in my place. That would be ridiculous. How about you just give us your address, and we'll be over soon. I'll be waiting. See, Jess, how easy was that to gin up business? You want to try? Um... Hey, how about a treeway? Treeway, want a treeway with us? Come on, just join in. Wow, so crazy. I have a, a different engagement a at another oh, place, so Hannah. Don't try to pawn that recorder off on me. Treeway. This week on the Biden Files, Major League Baseball yanks the All-Star game from Georgia. Mitch McConnell attacks woke corporations but asks them to please keep sending cash. Gates' troubles deepen. 
Trump appears to have fleeced donors, more trouble for the Oxford vaccine, and Dems can use reconciliation to pass their infrastructure bill. These are the Biden files. Day 73, April 2nd. President Biden and Democrats began what appears to be a long-haul selling job on their $2.5 trillion bill to shore up the nation's physical infrastructure paid for by hiking taxes on corporations and the wealthy. Minority leader Mitch McConnell has already said he will fight the bill tooth and nail, setting up a difficult balancing act that will likely force Democrats to again use reconciliation to bypass an expected filibuster. The move means that the math is daunting. Democrats will have to vote in unison if the bill is to become a reality in the next six months. The Texas Senate passed broad new voting restrictions in that state, limiting extended early voting hours, prohibiting drive-through voting, and making it illegal for election officials to proactively send applications to vote by mail to voters, even if they qualify. That bill now heads to the House, where it is expected to pass. The bill was immediately criticized by Texas's largest employers, those are American Airlines and Dell Technologies, both called it unacceptable. In a related story, Georgia's Republican-controlled House stripped Delta Airlines of a tax break worth tens of millions of dollars as punishment for its criticism of the state's new voting restrictions. The move was largely symbolic as the Senate is not expected to follow on. Delta's CEO, Ed Bastian, called the voting bill unacceptable. The entire rationale for this bill was based on a lie that there was widespread voter fraud in Georgia in the 2020 elections. This is simply not true. Delta is Georgia's largest employer. Major League Baseball pulled its summer All-Star game out of suburban Atlanta in rebuke to those new election rules in Georgia. The announcement by the commissioner, Rob Manfred, came after days of lobbying from civil rights groups and discussions with stakeholders like the Players Association. The action is likely to put additional pressure on other organizations and corporations to consider pulling business out of Georgia. One U.S. Capitol Police officer was killed, another wounded after a man rammed his car into a security checkpoint outside that Capitol. The suspect was shot and killed after he exited the vehicle with a knife in hand and began lunging at the officers. The incident came two weeks after the outer perimeter fence to the Capitol complex was removed. Investigators do not believe the incident was terrorism related. Chief Robert Conti of the Washington Metropolitan Police Department said they were still searching for a motive. 74 April 3rd. Florida Representative Matt Gates is alleged to have met women on SugarDaddy.com, a website that connects people for dates in exchange for gifts, dining, travel, and allowances. The Justice Department is now investigating whether Gates had sex with a 17-year-old girl and whether she received gifts. Gates has also allegedly showed other lawmakers while on the House floor photos and videos of nude women he said he had slept with. Gates has said he has no plans to resign. The U.S. and Iran agreed to resume negotiations on restoring the 2015 nuclear agreement. The two countries will negotiate through intermediaries in Vienna next week to try to begin both back into compliance with that accord. Trump unilaterally withdrew from the agreement to rein in Iran's nuclear program, calling it, quote, the worst deal ever negotiated. Last week, Trump also claimed in a rambling statement to Fox News that Iran, quote, didn't want to talk to Biden. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for a global minimum corporate tax rate, saying she wants to halt an international race to the bottom by countries competing to lure corporations with lower taxes. Trump lowered the tax rate from 35% to 21%, arguing that companies were incentivized to relocate offshore. Yellen criticized that strategy, saying the U.S., quote, isolated ourselves and retreated from the international order that we, in fact, created. 
Day 75, April 4th, in what the New York Times called an intentional scheme to boost revenues by the Trump campaign, the for-profit company that processed its online donations, WinRed, set up recurring donations by default for online donors for every week until the election. The company also introduced a second pre-checked box known internally as a money bomb that doubled a person's contribution without their knowledge. This drained the bank accounts of many small donors who cried fraud. The tactics came when Trump was facing a cash crunch and getting badly outspent by Democrats. The recurring donations swelled Trump's treasury in September and October just as his finances were deteriorating. He was then able to use tens of millions of dollars he raised after the election under the guise of fighting his unfounded fraud claims to cover the refunds he owed. The sheer magnitude of the money involved is unheard of for politics. In the final two and a half months of 2020, the Trump campaign, the Republican National Committee, and their shared accounts issued more than 530,000 refunds worth $64 million to online donors. A record 4 million people in the United States received a coronavirus vaccine on Saturday. While the daily coronavirus death toll in the U.S. is at its lowest level in months, the seven-day average of new daily cases rose 7% to 64,000, according to the CDC. Meanwhile, the former head of the FDA under Trump, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, claimed that there would not be a fourth wave, saying, quote, I think that there's enough immunity in the population that you're not going to see a true fourth wave of infection. In fact, experts say this is not close to being true at all. And Trump released a brief abusive message on Easter, quote, Happy Easter to all, including the radical left crazies who rigged our presidential election and want to destroy our country. Day 76, April 5th. The Senate parliamentarian has ruled that Democrats can use a fast-track budget reconciliation process for a second time this fiscal year, paving the way for them to move within months to push through President Biden's $2.5 trillion infrastructure plan over Republican opposition. The ruling shields them from the filibuster that requires 60 votes to overcome. Democrats have already used the budget maneuver once, known as reconciliation, to push through Biden's nearly $1.9 trillion stimulus last month without any Republican votes. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell threatened corporations with serious consequences if they use their economic power to, in his words, act like a woke parallel government. McConnell was reacting to the news that 200 companies signed a joint statement against proposals that threatened to restrict voting access in dozens of states. Those efforts are being led by Republicans in 43 states. McConnell called that opposition the, quote, outrage industrial complex and threatened them with removing tax breaks. McConnell thoughtfully said he still supports corporations making political donations, and in fact, corporations gave some $50 million to the members of the Republican Party that are attempting to enshrine minority rule at the statehouse level based on the false beliefs that Democrats rigged elections and that they are illegitimate if they are elected. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp also complained about baseball's decision to pull the All-Star game out of the state over the same voting restrictions Georgia's legislature recently approved. The Supreme Court has vacated an appeals court ruling that Trump could not block his critics from his Twitter feed. Trump had previously lost that case in lower courts. The case is moot since Trump is no longer president and has been banned from Twitter. However, in a concurrence, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that the court will need to examine the power of tech companies, claiming that it is, quote, unprecedented to have control of so much speech in the hands of so few private parties. Day 
1977, April 6th, the United States surpassed 150 million vaccine doses given. President Biden announced he would make every American eligible for the shot on the 19th. Nationwide, nearly half of new COVID infections are now in just five states. Those are New York, Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. These seem to be driven by the state's large college-age populations. In a surprise, Arkansas's Republican governor vetoed an anti-transgender health care bill that would make it illegal for transgender minors to receive gender-affirming procedures. Calling it true government overreach, Governor Asa Hutchinson also called the legislation a product of the cultural war in America. Hutchinson acknowledged that the Arkansas state legislature was likely to override his veto, which they did later in the same day. That made the state the first to criminalize gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth. Texas Governor Greg Abbott became the second Republican to ban government agencies, private businesses, and organizations that receive state funding from creating so-called vaccine passports. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had issued an executive order last week in the same. The Biden administration has been skittish on the issue, which airlines, businesses, and other countries are in fact rolling out in an effort to reopen safely. The issue has become the latest polarizing one around the pandemic. It has largely been stoked by right-wing media claiming that the government will use vaccine passports to discriminate and track people. Worth noting is that your cell phone and your Facebook account have more tracking software on them combined than anything the federal government has in their pocket. Abbott also announced a personal protest against Major League Baseball after his decision to move the All-Star Game out of Atlanta. Abbott, who was of course pushing similar election legislation in Texas, said he was now declining an invitation to throw out a first pitch for the Texas Rangers, that the state would no longer pursue the All-Star Game, and that he would cease participating in any baseball events. Quote, it is shameful that America's pastime is not only being influenced by partisan political politics, but perpetuating false political narratives. And Representative Matt Gaetz reportedly asked Trump's White House for a blanket preemptive pardon for himself and some identified congressional allies for any crimes they may have committed. Gates is under investigation by the Justice Department over possible sex trafficking involving a 17-year-old girl. It is unclear if Trump knew about that investigation or about Gates's request. However, White House lawyers called that request a non-starter. And carbon dioxide is topped 420 parts per million in the atmosphere for the first time. That is the halfway point to doubling pre-industrial carbon dioxide levels. Carbon dioxide has already warmed the planet by two full degrees. Day 78, April 7th. In a setback for the world's most widely used coronavirus vaccine, Europe's medical regulator acknowledged that the AstraZeneca vaccine is causing rare, but sometimes deadly blood clots in a small number of those vaccinated. The EMA stressed that it believes the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks, but that an immune response following vaccination is the probable cause of the blood clots. Most cases have occurred in women under the age of 60. The United Kingdom has already pulled the vaccine from use in under 30s. The CDC said the Kent variant first identified in Britain is now the dominant strain in the United States. This variant is 50% more contagious than others. New outbreaks in the U.S. have been linked to youth sports and daycare centers. The daily average for new cases has jumped about 56% in the past two weeks. Hospitalizations have risen about 28%. Five states are seeing most of the cases. The upper Midwest is now being hardest hit. More than a half million Americans signed up for health care coverage through the Affordable Care Act marketplace between mid-February and the end of March. 
Those portals will remain open into May. The political arm of the Republican Congressional Committee is deploying a pre-check box to enroll donors in repeating monthly donation and using ominous language to warn them of the consequences if they opt out. Quote, if you uncheck this box, you will have to tell Trump you're a defector. The language appears to be an effort to increase the volume of recurring donations, which are highly lucrative while invoking Trump's popularity. Those donors who do not uncheck the box will have their credit cards billed or bank accounts deducted for donations every month. The so-called dark pattern box was first reported by the Bulwark, an anti-Trump conservative news site. An earlier version said, quote, check this box if you want Trump to run again. Uncheck this box if you do not stand with Trump. The San Francisco School Board formally suspended a much-criticized plan to strip the names of a third of the city's public schools. The city's Board of Ed voted unanimously to reverse its decision to rename 44 schools whose names it claimed honored figures linked to racism, sexism, and perceived injustices. The schools included those named for Abraham Lincoln, Paul Revere, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, writer Robert Louis Stevenson, and longtime California Senator Dianne Feinstein. Day 79, April 8th. In a sign of continuing employment weakness, claims for unemployment rose again last week. A total of 741,000 workers filed initial claims. This is the second consecutive weekly increase after new claims had hit a pandemic low. President Biden announced six executive actions geared toward preventing all forms of gun violence, including mass shootings, community violence, domestic violence, and suicide. The DOJ also issued a series of proposed rules aimed at restricting the proliferation of so-called ghost guns, encouraging states to adopt red flag laws, and tightening loopholes around certain modified pistols. Biden made the announcement as a first step in tackling the issue of gun violence in the wake of mass shootings in Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said that under no circumstances would he vote to eliminate or weaken the filibuster. The West Virginia senator also suggested that he would be opposed to using reconciliation, an avenue Democrats are now considering for passing Biden's infrastructure package. Another Democrat, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, has also said she is opposed to getting rid of the filibuster. The filibuster has been used by Republicans repeatedly since President Obama was elected to office. Meanwhile, Biden said he was open to compromise with Republicans on how to pay for his approximately $2.5 trillion jobs and infrastructure package that added that inaction was unacceptable. Biden also said money was needed to finance projects beyond just roads and bridges. Quote, maybe it's because I come from a middle class neighborhood, but I'm sick and tired of ordinary people being fleeced. Trouble deepened for Florida Rep. Matt Gates as federal investigators were reportedly looking into a Bahamas trip Gates allegedly took in late 2018 or early 2019 with a marijuana entrepreneur and hand surgeon named Jason Pirazzolo. Pirazzolo allegedly paid for the travel expenses, accommodations, and female escorts. The Justice Department is trying to determine if those escorts were illegally trafficked across state or international lines for the purpose of sex with the congressman. More than 171,000 migrants were taken into custody along the U.S. southern border in March, driven by chaos in Honduras and the Latin American Triangle. That includes a record number of unaccompanied minors. It is the highest monthly total since 2006. 
55% of registered Republican voters believe the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol was actually led by left-wing activists trying to make Trump look bad. 55% of Republicans also believe the riot was mostly peaceful, law-abiding Americans, and that Democrats rigged the vote to deny Trump another term. A whopping 71% of those polled support Biden's ambitious infrastructure plan. 64% also support raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy. So far, not a single Republican in the House or the Senate has come out in favor of the infrastructure plan. These are the Biden Files. Chuck Mertz chatted with urbanist Devarian L. Baldwin on the dynamics between urban universities and the communities outside their walls. Baldwin discusses how universities are plundering the cities that surround them and why many towns have made Faustian bargains with colleges. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. What, what impact do you think the university changing from a traditional public good to a for-profit model may have on outsider influence over curriculum, whether that's private donor influence or, you know, public funding influence. Yeah, the um, we there's been a long kind of tracking of how the Koch brothers have influenced curriculum on campuses all across the country and various um, right wing um, donors have funded, um, quote unquote, student organizations on campus to push forward conservative and uh, right-wing agendas. Um, there's been a uh, recent controversy at the University of Mississippi with my good colleague, Professor Felder, um, who was summarily um, fired <laughs> from the University of Mississippi because of his critique of the influence of donor ideas and donor money on academic freedom and ideas at that campus, which became a national controversy. So yeah, there's, there's definitely precedent for this and it's, it's ramping up. So do you think that that impact and the kind of influence that it has is related to the more for-profit model that universities have? Because this is public funding that's being kept from Boise State University. This isn't private funding Mm -hmm. being kept from Boise State University. So I'm just curious uh, how it might impact all monies coming into a university. I think the philanthropy and the kind of for-profit model does have an impact on funding for both public and private universities because both receive private money. I, I spent a whole chapter talking about Arizona State University, um, whose public funding went from 60% to 20%. And then and they they invested and they, they first they brought in Michael Crow from Columbia, who had a history of building himself as an academic um, entrepreneur. And he was brought to uh, Arizona State, which is the biggest university in the country with over 50,000 students on its main campus to come there and to invest in a number of for-profit um, uh, entrepreneurial model style projects that extracted wealth from uh, student workers and invited private companies to come on their tax exempt campuses. Um, but let's be clear, uh, universities have choices. This 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 a targeting of social justice projects in the midst of um, kind of austerity or, or shrinking budgets. It's a decision. It's a choice. Um, when they're making these public announcements to uh, uh, the pu- to the public about what the choice is, either we, you know, shut down or uh, invest in, in or, or divest in the basic needs of the university, or we attack these frivolous, quote unquote, frivolous enterprises like social justice, DEI projects, that's a false choice. Because what's made invisible in this conversation are all of these other units on the university campus that are rarely talked about in these budget discussions. So we're talking about the real estate department, 
we are talking about the technology transfer division. We're talking about the um, the development office. We're talking about the police force. We're talking about the data mining contracts. Those are never in the conversation. We're talking about austerity budgets um, because those are the for-profit entities that have nothing to do with teaching teaching classes. And so what we, have, what we have here is this false narrative that institutions of higher education are primarily about the business of teaching when they haven't been that for at least four decades. And you write that these institutions, universities have been given the keys to drive the urban economy forward by reorganizing urban spaces to best service their institutional desires as much or more than any public interest. So what is the myth that we believe in of higher education and why is that myth so attractive? if it no longer exists? Well, first of all, the idea of the university serving ex ex explicitly or exclusively serving a public good um, goes back even farther than the 1970s, which you were so adequately um, laid out, which is, that, that became an important turning point. But as my good colleague, Craig Wilder points out, there's been a financial uh, capitalist relationship between uni universities um, since slavery. So when slavery was the dominant uh, economy of our country, um, a number of the founding universities in this in this country were underwritten by the slave economy, or in fact had slaves uh, build the buildings on campus. So from the very inception, um, this is this is the, the you know the 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 first fruits of the uh, of the relationship between capitalism and higher education. Then we go to the uh, 1890s, um, right after the Civil War, the Morrill Act, which was meant to democratize higher education, um, did so by taking land. Um, in suspect treaties from indigenous uh, um, nations uh, and gave it to states to set up the endowment for land grant public universities, both in the North and the South. And then we moved to the 1950s and 60s during the Cold War, and we have uh, universities serving as the, as, the, as the friendly face of urban renewal with uh, a change to the Federal Housing Act in 1949 that put uh, double the money in any, any any urban development project in cities that was affiliated with the university. So universities have played this facilitating role for capital's development um, over the 20th century and some and, and also even earlier. And so that that must be known. This week, we present new music from singer-songwriter Adam DeLippi. DeLippi, who was a finalist on American Idol last season, is a young artist from Rockford. This is his second single, and it makes its world radio debut here on Lumpen. This is Through Another's Eyes.
complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. When you are applying for this honorary unit, um, you know, in the memo of your $20 check, you can put what you want your unit to be. For example, let's say that um, you have a loved one named um, Osiris. And yeah. Osiris... Who doesn't? has a certain body temperature right let's say um i don't know 20 degrees celsius um, right and then from now on 20 degrees celsius will be one degree osiris and mm. and and you can hug your loved one and say osiris you are at one osiris right now isn't that just lovely to imagine imagine uh, imagine that your your cousin christine got into uh, a pretty bad car accident going yeah. at 105 miles per hour on the open highway you can have them remember that time by giving them 105 miles per hour is uh, a charlotte or whatever it's kind too it, it's sweet that they have this uh they have this very real very present thing in their life to to remind them of, the, of themselves and it will exist forever so like like for example let's say another individual gets into a car accident and, and they die and the officer can can ask well how how fast were they going and they can say one charlotte yeah and and then that individual will know and will be so glad for the luckiness that they've survived because one charlotte survived charlotte survived one charlotte yeah but janan did not couldn't even survive a jernan uh, so 
I happen to get one of these, so I, really? I suppose I need to speak to to you know. Please I'm do. a little biased, and again, like you can choose whatever this is. You know, they you don't say like I register, I want to have one of these, and they say okay, that's you know two two meters per arc length or whatever. That's yours. You can choose right what this represents. right right absolutely. Um, and and you can also it doesn't have to be for yourself or even necessarily a human loved one. Mm-hmm. I the love of my life. My lovely Siamese cat, Heart Paw. I I love her so much, yeah. and 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 she. I wanted her to live forever, not just in the second realm, which she will. I yeah, I was going to ask, but what, in in the in the empirical realm. Sure, and, and which is the, which is the true. The, people aren't going to remember, you know, a book you write or a plaque you have. People are going to remember units of measurement. They're going to be using those forever. Exactly, exactly. And and so I happened to get a unit of force named after Heartpaw. And now, and I love to do this, right. um, whenever I'm in the lab, um, whenever someone asks me, oh, how, how fast does that centrifuge go? I get to say 12,000 Heartpaw meters. And what, so... The unit of measurement was how fast your cat spun? Um, it is the force that was exerted by the cat. The force that was exerted by when 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 they pushed you, when they sat on you, when they do all sorts of things to me. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, eight to nine PM on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>